Progressive Rugby League. Good day. How you doing? Today we're talking about a book that, if you're of a certain disposition, is likely to stir some long, dormant emotions. Now, I count myself as someone of said disposition, which means I need to start the show with a disclaimer. While I will try, you should not expect objectivity from me, John O.P. Duncan, on the subject of the Super League War. Come on, grab a seat, let me explain. You see, I was a super anxious kid. My nerves are always jangling for no real decipherable reason. Rugby league in the winter, cricket in the summer were my sanctuaries. So when my dad, hey dad, chucked me the paper one Sunday morning after mass back in April 1995, yeah I went to mass, the walls of my sporting cocoon started ominously reverberating and I didn't like it. I mean I was a kid so I didn't really get it but I didn't really want to get it. I just wanted my game back and I wanted News Limited as they were known in those days to go and get out of here. And all these years later, as I was reading the epic Two Tribes, the untold story of rugby league's divided year and the birth of the NRL by Steve Maskell, the subject of today's Piero Book Club, I was surprised at how little my emotions had evolved on this matter over time. I mean, for reasons much more varied than rugby league these days, I'm still no fan of news. And while I was totally captivated by the book's multitude of takes from all the major figures from the era, I found that maybe I still don't really want to get it, if you know what I mean. You see, I found myself much more inclined to nod along to something a Jeff Cousins or a John Quayle would say, and much more likely to dismissively shake my head at something a John Rebo or Shane Richardson would utter. Those opinions and reflections were, in reality, all probably equally valid, but my reflex reactions showed that my emotions from the war had remained largely frozen in time. So there's your warning, folks. Now let's get to talking about that rollicking ride that was the 1997 Rugby League season in Australia, a season that is indelibly marked in the souls of everyone who experienced it, but a season that we simultaneously keep at arm's length. Well, Steve Mascord reckons it's time to reckon with that year, and he's taken it upon himself to bring it back into our focus by interviewing an impressively thick cross-section of figures from that period to give us the best opportunity to come to our own sensible conclusions, if we can only navigate our own emotions and personal histories. Steve Mascord, welcome back to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Mate, thanks for having me on, and your mass going would fit in very well around here because I'm in Ireland for Christmas, I'm in Tipperary, so uh, I think I'll be dragged along to mass on Christmas Day, so... (laughs) There are worse places to be. I guess you'll get a, a few good tunes, a few good harmonies. Yeah, but the pub's close at eight because of COVID, so you've got to get it early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, Steve, congrats on two tribes. You really have gone above and beyond to canvas the views from every nook and cranny of the Super League war, from the, the biggest administrators to players, coaches, agents, and referees. And I know listeners will scoff this book down just like I did, so big kudos on delivering for we the people. Don't forget yeah. the Knights Ball Boy. The Knights Ball Boy is also Yes. Cute. <laughs> and just so you know, listeners, at the end of this chat, we'll share a discount code for loyal PRL listeners and disloyal ones too, why not, uh, to get a handy deal on the book. Now, Steve, in the intro, I mentioned my difficulty in sidestepping, I guess, my personal backstory with the war as I read along. Is that something you grappled with in determining your approach to the book, navigating your own emotional baggage from that period? I assume we all have some. Or does compartmentalizing things come easily for an old journo like yourself? enthusiasm was for the yarns and for the stories because I knew, you know, and as I spoke to people, I said, what about the guy who got sacked for going to the opera? 
you know, what about Jason Deef doing a helicopter? And, <laughs> and I obviously was there when Brett Mullins got beaten up in his own bed, and I never wrote it because I was on holidays the next day. And I was like, I'm not going to doorstop Brett Mullins in the... Little did I know that he was actually going to come down to reception that very day and wait for Dean Sampson to come back to fight him. I only found out that, you know, doing this book. So my enthusiasm was really about the yarns, and I just wanted to revisit some of the yarns. And of the three kind of groups I describe in the intro of rugby league fans as per their approach to the, the year, I'm the train spotter. I'm the guy who's like, I wish I'd gone to see Melbourne play Adelaide in Hobart that, mm. year, that year. So my overwhelming my overwhelming approach to it was from the train spotter point of view and just kind of, I just like the kind of unpopular aspects of popular things. I like the albums of the really popular band that everyone else hated. Yeah. I mean, I like Van Halen 3 with Gary Sharon singing, you know, so I really like this year mainly because everyone else hated it, you know. So, no, I, there was no real emotional baggage, but it was more a bit of a, an intellectual and philosophical journey talking to these people. I was discovering and defining my own opinion and feelings about the year as mm. I went, you know. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that a bit further as we go along in the chat. But, yeah, you are a guy who goes... I guess straight to the album track instead of the single. Everyone else is going to the single. You're straight to track 11. I love that. Now, yeah, Steve, exactly. <laughs> we've spoken a couple of times over the past 18 months. The first time in early 2020, it was still fairly early days, I guess, in piecing the book together. Then we spoke again a few months back uh, when you were getting closer to the end. Can you give us a sense of the experience of writing a book like this? Because you, you set yourself quite a task here. Writing a book on the Super League War is a big undertaking. It's a big deal and, and you know people will pay attention. So you want to get it right and do it justice. So how do you reflect on how it all unfolded? Uh, did you feel a responsibility, a weight? Or were you always confident you could pull something off that appropriately reflected uh, the gravity of the period? It's a big question and it is a big story to tell. But even though that my, I mean, my first book, which you guys supported, and I'm really appreciative. There's a copy of it here. My in-laws have it right on the couch. Very quite doggy, so they must have read it. But it, you know, it's a very different experience to the first book. It's a, you know, it's a piece of journalism. Yet the actual writing of it was a surprisingly similar experience because most of the hundred people I interviewed, aside from Rodney Overby, who I'd never met before, I knew. So it was actually a bit like, you know, I moved to England. And here I am talking to people, some of whom I, I know, people who I haven't spoken to in maybe 20 years. So in that regard, it was actually, even though it was a piece of journalism, it was anything but dry. And I say objective, I hope that the work is objective, but the experience of writing it wasn't really objective because, as I said, I know the people and I was probably in a unique position to write this because on one hand I had the time, mm-hmm. but on the other hand... I wasn't someone that Ken Arbison didn't know when I asked to come over and have a chat. So the process was actually quite heartwarming and kind of, I wouldn't say life-affirming, but kind of soul-enriching in a way because mm. I was a long way from home and a lot of the conversations started off just gossiping about people we both knew and me asking the person what they were up to yeah. and them asking me what I was up to and you know stuff like that. So it was, no, it was actually a wonderful experience. I didn't find it uh, in any way difficult, and because I didn't like just do that, I did other stuff for the two years. Yeah. Uh, so I just squeezed in interviews and and tried to set myself a target of hitting three figures. Yeah. And then realised my record keeping was poor, and I'd hit three figures long before I thought <laughs> I had. So no, the experience was wholly positive, and like I said, it was quite a warm feeling and a nice feeling, and a kind of 
connected me with my career as it was in a, in a really unexpected way. Yeah. No, there's a lot of memory lane to the book and it's it like you say it's it's got a warmth to it which is just fantastic despite the the sort of fraught subject matter at times now steve 100 people interviewed for the book that that seemed like a lot are there a couple of those chats that stick in your mind as either surprising or particularly impactful for you uh well you just read the book what stuck out for you well, there's a couple, actually. I guess I go to the very last interview with Paul, the Chief Harrigan. That soliloquy, as, as you put it, that's pretty special, how he, he captured the mood of the, the town and the moment. You know, it was a, a time of huge upheaval for rugby league and, and the town of Newcastle with BHP leaving town. It was really all happening up there. And it was pretty spine-tingling to read about that from his unique perspective. And I want to get to that Newcastle grand final win a bit later. But, yeah, that was a, a real highlight, I guess. Another one was really interesting, Morris Lindsay. Um, that was a fascinating chapter, obviously the, the former head honcho of rugby league in the UK. So there's a couple that stood out to me. But how about yourself? Definitely Paul Harrigan. Yeah. Paul Harrigan was very moving and emotional you know, for me because I'd been working on the book for two years. And, and he basically, I mean... Like I said, he's sort of interviewing Luke Skywalker about what Star Wars about, and you don't really expect Luke Skywalker to be able to explain all the metaphors in George Lucas's movie, and then you speak to him, and he actually really understands it better than you do. So I thought that was amazing. It was an amazing half an hour on the phone. You know, sports journalism doesn't often... Uh, I know a lot of people get easily moved by sports journalism and all the slow-motion ESPN documentaries and stuff like that i don't really um i don't look for that sort of sports writing or sports documentary making i don't seek it out and it doesn't really touch me like it touches a lot of people but i found the conversation with paul harrigan really moving that's the most important thing that he will do in his life and certainly the most important thing you'll witness and i think i think it's one of the most important things i ever witnessed at close quarters and and didn't know at the time how important it was. I just thought, mm, this is, happens every year, someone wins a comp, you know? Yeah, yeah. But looking back with the context of 25 years, it was obviously extremely important and an amazing achievement by a group of men yeah. and a very important achievement in the context of the entire sports journey mm. since 1895. So, yeah, I, Paul Harrigan just jumps out at me and I wouldn't say it's daylight second, but you ask me that question a hundred times and I'll say Paul Harrigan a hundred times. Yeah, no worries. Well, can I just quickly ask about Morris Lindsay? Because that, that was another chapter, as I mentioned, that jumped out at me. And firstly, is he okay? Because you kind of hint that you weren't sure if you accidentally kind of uh, killed him. Um, it was a long time ago now. So I did, I didn't hear back from him at all. I haven't heard from him since. I still haven't heard from him since, since that chapter was written. But yeah, he's fine. I mean, I've been to, okay. yeah, I've been to functions where people have spoken of him. And I mean, It'd be something wrong if you learned about a major news event from a book, wouldn't it? I mean, um, he's, uh, <laughs> right. no, he's, okay, uh, good to know. We don't live in that world anymore. <laughs> so, okay. uh, you know, he's fine. He's fine. He actually was, you know, I think he had a tough time in the days and weeks leading up to my visit. And someone asked about whether it was a feisty interview or a ill-tempered interview or or whether it was difficult. It wasn't difficult at all. I, you know, and, and I... I just asked him questions and kind of reported what he said in, in answer, and, and that's it, really. Yeah. There was no ill feeling during the interview, and whether he reads it and finds stuff he doesn't like, I don't know, but I did 
write a story straight afterwards, you know, which appeared in British trade press in League Weekly, which no longer exists, you know, where he was very critical of recent administrators. Mm. And maybe there was some pushback from that and maybe he wished I didn't quote him uh, on those things that he said. But I haven't, like I said, I'll go back to yeah. what I said. I no haven't from him. It doesn't come across that it was a, a prickly interview. It's just, um, yeah, he's that kind of old-fashioned type of spruker, I guess, and he's sort of throwing out his view on things and you kind of correct him through through the the text of the the chapter and yeah it's just an interesting chapter i, I really recommend it now steve the i think the beauty of the book is that it gives we outsiders an insider's view of how things unfolded and ask those insiders to reflect on it all with a bit of useful distance 25 years later i'm interested in whether those reflections particularly from the really big figures of the time you know your ken arthurson's your john quails jeff cousins john revo morris Lindsay, and others whether those reflections gave you a bit of a window into kind of human nature that you may not have had access to previously. Yeah, definitely because the people, it's hard to let go of core beliefs. Mm. And that's what I found. You know, I found that, you know, John Quayle still believes that the clubs of the game and that the kind of new clubs were interlopers in a way. And yeah. that they were ungrateful and that he's kind of imbuing these clubs with human characteristics. Yeah. They're like people. And it's like they're the last people who... They only got invited to the party because we had a few extra seats at the table and then they kind of tr- tried to start their own party and they're, yeah. they're ungrateful, you know. And equally, Jeff Cousins, who's an eco-warrior now and he saves rainforests and stuff, he equally believed exactly what he believed in 1997, you know, that News Limited were unconscionable and that it was 100% greed and that the, the discontent that already existed in rugby league was not a significant factor at all in mm. the Super League war and that it was purely News Limited, you know, greed. And then you had John Rebo who would offer up stuff about commentating in Mandarin without being asked, <laughs> just the same way as he would have in 1996. Yeah. So I found that super interesting aspect of human nature that you have these, I guess... In my first book, it was more about the kind of reminiscence, the subconscious reminiscence of your late teenage years. And in a way, what this showed me is, uh, so your identity is formed when you're young, sort of music you like and stuff like that. But your kind of work morals and your work attitudes are probably formed later in life. And it's not so much your age, it's, it's when you're actually thrown into the furnace of pressure and scrutiny Mm. at work. And you have to make decisions on where you stand very quickly. And people tend to, I guess it's so traumatic to make those decisions that it is like a kind of casting iron. It's like a yeah. sculpture of your kind of business morals. And it stays that way for the rest of your life. You have to make these decisions probably very quickly mm. about these situations you're faced with where commerce meets morality. And when you decide, you kind of decide for life. Yeah. So I found that I definitely taught me a lot about human nature, and I was surprised that people, you know, like Kevin Neal was someone who had moved on in life. You know, he managed the Australian swimming team, he's got a courier firm now, mm. and he seemed to have changed. He seemed to change a little bit. He said South should never be kicked out; it should never happen. Blah mm. blah blah. You know, Neil Whitaker it seemed to me to be carrying regret at South's exclusion, even though because it was outside the remit of this book, I didn't ask him specifically about it. It was mm. something that was always a a shadow to him mm. that he felt that he was seen as the person who kicked out South. I don't think people think of Neil Whitaker that way at all. They all blame News Limited. If you're a South fan, you don't go Neil Whitaker. He, he's got horns on him when I think of him. No. You don't. You kind of think of Rupert, you know. Mm. So, but to Neil Whitaker, I felt 
from spending an hour with him that he, if not blamed himself, felt that I was did for South being kicked out. So that's the other thing about this is that I think people involved look back on it like a traumatic period for them, in talking about 97 specifically now, and it, they find it quite curious that others don't even think about it now. And that they're not seen in terms of 97. Unless you played for the Newcastle Knights, 1997 is kind of like everyone's been put into a group sort of hypnosis yeah. and told that it never happened. And yet the people at the centre of it still remember. And they're looking around the room going, why isn't anyone else talking about this? Why, <laughs> why is it such a vivid memory for me? And yet the people who normally want to speak to me about rugby league never ask me about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, reading the book, it just kind of got me thinking that and reminded me maybe that people don't really tend to change once they hit 30. So, yeah, you, you mentioned those those players who were obviously well beyond that and uh, not changing much subsequently. But there are a couple of interviewees that were in their maybe 20s, early 20s, sort of getting into their careers. And I felt they had a, a bit more of an objective ability to be able to reflect on mm. what happened. And, and I'm thinking maybe, was it Paul Kine, perhaps, who started young yeah, in, yeah. in one of the roles? And he was quite uh, lucid with his reflections and I thought quite insightful. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, but also Paul Kine was one of the very few people who worked on both sides. Yes, of course. Yeah, good I point. Mean, and I think David Gallup, you know, unfortunately I interviewed David Gallup very early and he's underrepresented in the book. And I am going to make some changes and put some more quotes in, but I've got some David Gallup quotes in front of me, which didn't make the book and will make subsequent rent rights. But he said, I think you've got to consider the fact that many clubs were in a poor financial state before 1994 and into the 90s, many clubs, when it all finished, the settlement checks were provided and for for those clubs, it meant they'd be saved by what happened. Mm. Obviously, for many players, it was money they could never have dreamed of. So despite history recording it as a period of upheaval, there are clubs and players who should thank they're lucky stars that it happened. At the same time, compromise had to be reached because the size of the combined competition wasn't sustainable. But he said, you know, people on both sides loved the game and they thought there was certainly some opportunists of people who were only thought of themselves. But mm. I think most of the people I interviewed liked the game and they felt that it was either being held back by the ARL's slavish commitment to Packer. Yeah, right. Or, you know, or that they, they had to fight for the game because it would be ruined by the News Limited raids and they were motivated by those competing kind of understandings of the situation yeah and thank you for those exclusive quotes for the next edition of your book too thank you very much (laughs) now steve i see this book as a a book for the people and i mean that as a compliment because you don't get too fancy about things you ask the questions that people want answered and the main one is who won the war and reading all the answers to this question there are dozens from dozens of people it makes me realize that it's actually a problematic question even though it's something we all want answered because when people respond, they're often using different measures to everyone else. So some might say, well, news got the pay TV, right? So they won. Some might say, well, rugby league didn't get to China and news spent $800 million, so news didn't win and maybe the ARL won. Some may judge it on the clubs that fell and the clubs that remain. Some might look at the somewhat dismal World Club Challenge. So when we're discussing this question in the front bars over summer or winter, wherever you are, what do you think are the metrics we should be using to judge who actually won the war, or is it an ultimately fruitless question to ask? Yeah, no, I think there's definitely different things. So there's kind of football, media, and business. Yeah. So from a football point of view, the ARL withstood the raids of people who who were much better resourced than them. And thanks to Newcastle winning, they had enough at the table 
for rugby league to be recognisable the next year and to have a lot of green and gold and black in the logo and for people to think that it was the ARL and they had a partner who was willing to almost rewrite history in their own disfavour. News was happy to collude in eradicating their own involvement in the history books because it would help the business. Mm. So the ARL, from a football point of view, even though we have, you know, I would argue dispassionately that even from a football point of view, News Limited won because we have more Super League clubs from 1997 in the NRL than we have ARL clubs from 1997. If you sided with Super League, you survived as a standalone club if you were a Sydney club. Whereas if you went to the ARL you would be frog-marched into a joint venture unless mm. you were super rich like Manly or, or the Roosters or you got kicked out and went to court like South. So, you know, you could even argue from a football point of view, News won. But, you know, News weren't really in the business of football. They are in the business of getting TV rights. So from a football point of view, you could say the ARL probably got out of the battle. They'd lost a couple limbs in the battle, but they limped on to live mm. another day. From a media point of view, you must argue that News and Super League won because... Optus Vision isn't around anymore, and Malcolm Node, you know, said to me that he's not sure that Foxtel would actually be present in its current form without Rugby League, that Mm. it may not have got through that early period of pay TV in Australia. So from a media point of view, you know, I think you could definitely mount a very strong argument that News Limited won that battle. From a business point of view, the people who know this stuff better than me say that Packer and uh, ACP, as they were then, were hands-down winners because they barely committed any money to paying players. Optus Vision paid all that money. Mm. They put Super League on TV in 1997, Mm. and then they subsequently did deals afterwards that earned the Packers billions and billions of dollars, that they were hands-down the business winners Mm. of the Super League war. And it's very poorly understood by football fans because we say it was Packer versus Murdoch. I'm trying to flog this book saying... It was Packer versus Murdoch, but actually it was Jeff Cousins and yeah. Optus Vision as far as keeping the ARL clubs afloat in 1997. Super League could have been the only competition in 1997 if it wasn't for Optus Vision and Jeff Cousins. So I, I think they're the three metrics that matter to me, football, media and business, and there was a different winner in all three. Yeah, fascinating stuff. There's a, a lot there, and I, I wonder sometimes you talk about the business side of things with the pay TV rights. I wonder sometimes if some of those takes rely on a freezing of the 90s reality in a way because, yeah, obviously people would say that News won because they got the pay TV rights, but, you know, would they not have got them eventually anyway? I mean, Kerry Packer kind of eventually died. His son stopped caring about TV, moved into casinos. You know, News had a bottomless amount of money that would Foxell really have kicked the bucket in those days? So, you know... Who knows, really? And I guess the the question of who won, I guess, reflects a, a human desire to kind of simplify things and put things in neat boxes when reality is probably a bit more murky. Yeah, John, the one thing that came to me, I have never written this line. It seems the most obvious line to put in a book with my subject. Yeah. Without Super League, there'd be no NRL. Right. So, you know, you would the ARL have become the NRL anyway by osmosis? Mm. Perhaps not, you know, um. Again, from David Gallup, who knows what rugby league would have looked like if it hadn't happened. There's perhaps a misconceived view that everything was flying at that point in time when it all happened. And in fact, 
there was lots that wasn't going well. Mm. And the Super League War brought a rigour of finances and to marketing and to the game itself that we built on for the first decade of the century. We were able to build on that stuff and regenerate the game to a point where in 2012 they did a record television deal. That was a product of where the game had come to in those years. Rigorous enforcement of salary cap and attention to the on-field product, the rise of professional athletes playing the game, mm. all of those things, they may never have happened but for Super League. That's from David Gallup, who obviously yeah. was a legal counsel. You know, I think the ARL would have developed in the direction of the NRL and we didn't certainly get the rationalisation that the game would have chosen naturally. You know, we got rid of teams who should have kept and we kept teams that maybe we could have moved or gotten rid of. But in the end, we got a form of rationalisation and we were sort of forced into a more professional era. Yeah, kind of. I guess I would say to David Gallup's comments, once again, I wonder if that's a freezing of the 90s reality because, yeah, TV deals have been great, but that's also a reflection of the exploding market for TV rights over the last couple of decades. So, once again, I could make an argument that, I mean, without the Super League War, I'm sure Rugby League would still have a pretty decent TV deal. And, you know, back then in the 90s, the TV ratings were through the roof for the weekly Rugby League telecast. So they're not like that anymore. So, you know, you could also make the argument that they would have been advantaged by having better ratings nowadays. Yeah, but then we had also a monoculture, didn't we? Where we were forced to watch what was on free-to-air television, what was in, forced to read what was in three newspapers. And now we have this atomized media landscape where people were always... So you could say that argument is actually freezing the 90s reality and and trying to bring it to today. You're always going to have an atomized media, you know, in 2021, and people are always going to have more choice. And people were not going to be forced to watch Rex Moss at (laughs) 6 o'clock on a Sunday night. You know what I mean? And so, so I I, I don't know, like, I think, you know, Jeff Carr, you know, argues that uh, it was a lot of pain to have a better judiciary system, you know? I think that's a very good argument as well. We actually don't know what would happen if the IRL had continued and just brought off, you know, if the full bench had upheld Birchett's original decision, what news probably would have forced their way in yeah. some other way. You know, and as you're right, they might have waited around till 2000 and given the game a hell of a lot of money mm. for the rights and the game could have actually skyrocketed. And, and maybe, and again, the other aspect of it, Jono, is we didn't un- really understand the value of IP in 1997. So yeah. we didn't understand what South Sydney were going to mean. Yeah. you know, t- to us today and what Balmain Tigers now mean to people where, you know, I look at the book on Amazon Australia charts and the, the book that keeps overtaking two tribes and then some, sometimes two two tribes skip it is the last Balmain Tigers, you know, people mm, want yeah. to read that. Whereas, you know, in 1997, Balmain were a struggling inner city club who was looking at moving to Melbourne or, mm. you know, like, like so all those factors. That I think basically I try to answer questions but probably end up asking more new ones yeah i mean that that's the that's the beauty of the book and beauty of the conversation and like i said at the top i'm of course biased by my emotional attachment that began in the mid 90s there i guess one more thing on the football side of things you know you think of the the makeup of the competition in a couple of years time the competition won't look too different to what it looked like in 1995 you know a gold coast team is back a second brisbane team is coming back a perth team might come back in a couple of years too hopefully and yeah. you know that fact can be used to justify a lot of different opinions i guess it's like after an election the reasons you attribute for an election result often say more about you than what really happened and that's that's probably the case with me too so i think i think before we move on also there's been a paradigm shift in australian sport professional sport where in the mid 90s the america model was seen as an inevitability 
mm. that the Brooklyn Dodgers would become the LA Dodgers. It was only a matter of time, mm. you know. And so we, and that's why we had the Sydney Bulldogs and the, yeah. the Sydney Tigers, and, and the Eastern Suburbs became the Sydney Sydney Roosters mm. because we just thought that was just how it was going to go. But yes, now I don't think that's the case. I think Volandis has kind of shown Australian professional sport is going to go its own way. Thank you very much, and it's going to be somewhere in the middle of the American and English models where. The suburban clubs in Sydney are taking on the kind of mystique in the marketplace of a West Ham or an Arsenal yeah. or whatever, where they actually become much bigger than they have every right to be, if you just look at their bricks and mortar, mm. through the history and the, the building of IP through you know social media and blah, blah, blah. So we might, might end up with the Reds and the Crushers again, but we'll end up with them for kind of different reasons than we originally had them, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But it's interesting to reflect and, you know, you think of all the rigmarole and the competition doesn't look that different. But anyway, we'll move on. Now, Steve, as you know, there's a relatively small but absolutely committed band of fans of the international game. Uh, How should international rugby league devotees reflect on the impacts of the Super League war? Because at the time, I imagine it would have been heavenly what Super League were trying to do. But soon enough, it was clear that the international game was just a pawn in a battle grounded in New South Wales and Queensland. So were international rugby league fans just treated like a dishrag, Steve? Actually, my answer to this question is very much the same as your comment on the last question, which is we're ending up now with what we were promised back then. You know, we were were promised Tonga beating Australia, you know, but we actually only got it in 2019 and we got there by more organic means by player power mm. and, and instead of spending money on that outcome it was players actually giving up money that got us there mm. it's players like andrew Fafida and jason Taumalolo and these guys who actually actually said they didn't want money <laughs> they wanted yeah. to play for tonga they wanted to play for their grandparents yeah. that actually got us to achieve things that super league promised super league didn't keep almost any of its promises that made the national game to the point where the World Nines in Suva was supposed to be there every year and actually before Super League kicked off in Australia, it had been moved to Townsville. So, you know, Super League did absolutely uh, stuff all the international game. And what's more, my reflection is that in sort of talking to all these people was that the international game was far more important to Australian administrators in 1995 than it is now. And there's nothing... If you were trying to start another competition in Australia now, say a summer league to put on Channel 7, you know, you might try and get Wigan to play in it or Leeds, yeah. maybe, but you wouldn't You wouldn't even make an overseas phone call. I mean, <laughs> the international game is so much less important in Australia than it was in 1995, and it wouldn't be a pawn if there was another war breakout tomorrow. Yeah, no, that, that's a pretty straightforward one, isn't it? Now, Steve... To the piecing of the game back together through the formation of the NRL. Now, I want to come at this from the angle of Newcastle Knights 1997 ARL Grand Final victory over Manly. That was a game that was obviously just amazing. I remember seeing Darren Albert score that winning try and I immediately jumped up. I ran down our polished timber hallway and I did a big sliding dive through the open doors of my brother's bedroom. Uh, I was I was so excited, not really about the specific result, But as a kid who found 1997 quite painful, I remember just the unbridled joy of witnessing how the game could still could still capture the imagination of the masses and the way that game unfolded on top of the preceding week that Paul Harrigan articulated so well. It was just the ultimate recipe for an explosion of goodwill 
that the game just desperately needed. So, Steve, that 1997 ARL Grand Final was taken on mythical status. At the time, people said that it was the game that saved rugby league. That's obviously a bit much, but as someone who studied the formation of the NRL and spoke to the key figures about it, what status do you think we should afford that game in terms of how the NRL was ultimately formed? Did it have an influence or was it just a good game of footy that has grown a few extra legs? Well, I think that contrasting opinions are I tried to make them stark as possible. Mm. The end of one chapter says it's the game that saved rugby league, says Neil Whitaker. And the start of the next chapter says, that's bullshit, says Wayne Bennett. Um, I think it's the game that saved the ARL's stake in what was to become the NRL. I think Mm. it it saved the traditional game because news held all the cards and Neil Whitaker was able to to use that game straight away. Where where Ian Frickberg called him the very next morning and said, let's get started. Mm. And we had an NRL by December 19 uh, of that year. So... I think it's the game that saved what you thought of as rugby league, Jono, yeah. and what maybe a lot of the listeners thought of as rugby league. Didn't save rugby league, but we might have had South being kicked out earlier, and mm. you know, we might have had a more Super League-looking United competition without the Newcastle uh, victory. Maybe the Mariners would have been around the following year. <laughs> it certainly saved the traditional game, and it was serendipitous that the only community in the whole country that still cared to a sufficient degree happened to win the comp Mm. that year in very emotional circumstances and that was a victory for the street level community aspect of rugby league over the shiny corporate future that we all or a lot of us thought the game was moving towards yes i think you're right there i'm thinking to my inherent biases here but it's a game that probably saved people like me our blushes in terms of when the the game got back together we felt we could point back to that grand final and go that was real footy that was the best game ever that proves that ARL was was winning and and was great all the time even though that's not really the reality but at the time we could hang our hat on that and go see told you reality is probably different but that's how it felt the people who ran the ARL competition in 1997 did a better job with the on-field product and again, we're looking, talking about trying to answer questions and asking more, but mm. I think it speaks to the actual real nature of rugby league and its connection to the communities that begot it, you know, that yeah. I think Gary Pearce, who was a rugby union international, said, the harder it is on rugby league people, the better they go. You know, and he worked for Super League up until the first round and went to the opera and got sacked. You know, so he, you know, he said that rugby league people go better when it's lean and there's not a lot of uh, largesse around. And he said in, that was shown in 1996 where the Super League, you know, we signed up Canberra and Brisbane because they were the best teams. And having been signed up, they failed in 1996. Mm. And George and Manly made the grand final. And, you know, Cronulla was a Super League team that got the furthest. Mm. And he thought that was actually because they got soft on money. Yeah. So it's interesting. People don't say tennis players get soft on money or golfers get soft on money. And, mm. you know, I think there is rugby league's strength is also its limitation, you know, is that the fact is that rugby league players and clubs get soft on money and the communities which have no money drag them back to reality mm. and help them survive but also means that rugby league can never have money <laughs> because it means that it's actually rooted in those sort of, you know, um, working class communities. As I said, it, it actually, in trying to answer a question, 
you actually ask questions about the sport's nobility is tied to its limitations in a really, really visceral, essential, atom-level way. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say a couple of things to that, and you you make a lot of great points there. One, I guess the difference with this particular period and the comparison with tennis and and golf is that players and, and clubs went from having, you know, just limited means or money and then there was an explosion. There was a, a huge step jump, which probably led to a softness for a, a period of time. And I guess the other point on the sport not having money, I mean, that's definitely the case, you could argue, for the game in the UK. But, you know, the NRL's just signed a, a pretty rich TV deal for the next five years, even though, you know, people are criticizing it as not, not as good as it perhaps could be. But it's among the elite of Australian sport, you know, n- not far behind the AFL. The nature of Australian society as well is that it's an egalitarian society, so it's still going to be used by Channel 9 and Fox to sell Bunnings and Wild Turkey. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's still being, it's still being used as a billboard pointed at the western suburbs. But the and that's western okay. suburbs, yeah, it is, because that is the nature of Australian society, and that's where that is who Fox and 9, that's who they want to reach, because mm. that's how... They make money, you yeah. know what I mean? But it also means that rugby league always remains a touring car and never becomes a Formula One car. <laughs> it always has touring car sponsors. And that is not really good for rugby league outside of Australia because it, it keeps it inward looking because the bills keep being paid by selling things to the working class. And unfortunately, there is already a rugby for everyone else. <laughs> and it's not like you can suddenly, if you try to change... Uh, or, or diversify it's not like there's not already a rugby that is servicing everybody else so it does make it very difficult for the sport to move outside and broaden its its appeal um, yeah no I, I know what you mean that's what pays the bill that's what we are that's and that's i go back to what i said in the previous answer it's really in the dna of the sport that it's like it becomes a fish out of water when it tries to move away from its its sustenance which is the water is the, the burbs, the suburbs, you know, the kind of the people who invented it. And really, 1997, it was, a, it was kind of a fish on a beach or a whale on a beach sort of floundering around, you know, trying to breathe in a new space. And it did it. It just did it, yeah. you know? No, yeah, well, very well put. And, you know, obviously a conversation that we, we could go on forever about, but let's continue. Steve, another great aspect of the book is how you give a decent nod to the on-field happenings of both competitions in 1997. Besides the obvious, the the Knights win, is there an on-field narrative that you think is worth putting back in people's memory banks from that year? Yeah, well, we had the longest... I checked with David Middleton when I was doing the book. We had the longest game ever, first-class game ever, uh, which was won by Noel Goldthorpe's uh, field goal. Yeah, I think it was 112 minutes. It might have been 109. uh, Between 109 and 112. I'm not (laughs) sure there, but... And also... I think, you know, it was a very good Ashes series in mm-hmm. England, mm-hmm. very tight. And the World Club Challenge was funny. I guess you'll never get the mainstream fan who watches one game a week to get enthusiastic about uh, Paris versus the Perth Reds. But it was funny. It was a lot of funny. <laughs> so the Super League Grand Final was a bit of a damn squib. Brisbane were clearly the better team, was played in the wet. You know, Steve Renouf scored three tries, which is a good effort in the grand final. I don't think people are going to be ever get too excited about that. Mm. But I would say that, as David Gallup also said, he said that, you know, really the two games that that year should have given us, if we were going to judge both comps equally and accept that they both contributed to what we have now, which people can't accept, 
is that I would say the, the Tri-Series final and the ARL Grand Final were the, were the two big games that year. Yeah. Yeah, but people, you know, obviously because the Tri-Series only happened for one year, it doesn't have any legacy that people want to remember, you know? Yeah. And, and Steve, you also pepper the book with several articles that you wrote for the SMH in 1997 about the toing and froing of that period. You know, some cracking pieces, may I say. As a, a student of journalism, the written word, I'm curious about how you reflected on your own work from all those years ago. Do you think your style has changed? Has the style of sports journalism changed to an extent where you would be covering that period differently if it were to have occurred in 2021? I think I was a better writer then than I am now. I mean, I used to go I used to go into the office every day and write, whereas now I do all these other things. And I guess I'm more conscious now of, you know, like I've got that Patreon thing I do with two other guys, regularly long reads. And mm. I am conscious of like it not taking up too much time in my day. You know, whereas back then I was paid to hit the phones all day mm. and write the best of what I had at the end of the day. And that's one big thing that's changed is that, you know, Brad Walter and I would have one space in the paper between us or a space each and we put in the best news, the most news we could into those two spaces. Mm. That type of news writing is completely gone now. A new fact is a new story now because it's a new click. So mm. I covered a Kiwi tour for NRL.com a few years ago and I wrote stories the same way. You know, in the 15th paragraph it would say, meanwhile Dean Vare is in doubt with a hamstring injury. And they would take that out and make a separate story of it. Why would you put that in the 15th paragraph? Right. But we, you know, we only had that much space in the paper. Mm. And like this time of the year, in December, strangely, in a weird sort of way, there's more pressure on me to come up with a yarn in the middle of December in 2021 than there was in 1996 when there was a war happening in rugby league because that was a cricket season in 1996, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Whereas now it's like there's this voracious appetite for content and every, on every subject and rugby mm. league is one of those so it's changed a lot you know it's changed a hell of a lot and obviously there is now this thing where you engage people and it doesn't matter if you inform them as long as you engage you know it's more important to engage than inform yeah. them um, so the type of story that has you know if we're having a talk now for an hour mm. you post this podcast you say we talked to Steve Mascord about his book Two Tribes and mm. we cover a lot of ground and then right next to that, you say, rugby league's a billboard pointed at the western suburbs. More people are going to actually listen to the five-minute grab where Steve Mascord, yeah. the, the, I don't know how you can be a uh, snob from Windang, but, you know, the <laughs> snob from Windang says that uh, rugby league's just a billboard selling wild turkey and bunnings. That is going to grab, you know, more people yeah. than the whole chat does. You know what I mean? So, and you probably won't care if that's properly representative of our conversation because you'll get more people listening. Whoa, to whoa, that whoa, crowd. Steve, Steve. I was, my, my angle was going to be whether Dean Farrow is going to play on the weekend. You know, did he actually play? <laughs> you don't know me very well. No, Steve. I, know, sorry, go you ahead. You know, like, so, so it has changed a lot, but my, I don't know, I just do what I feel comfortable doing and I ask myself these questions all, all the time Yeah, about what it all means and how it's changed and whether I'm doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Can, can you imagine if the Super League war happened in the 24-7 media communication world of 2021? Like you say, every new piece of information is a new story. It would be so suffocating. And it was pretty suffocating back then, but my goodness gracious me, the clickbait that would be surrounding it, every, all the rumours that would be coming out, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing that. 
things changing by the second, like it was, I guess, uh, maybe last year when the, the comp was called off for COVID and we weren't sure if it was going to come back and there was just so many rumours and every time someone heard something, they were on the phone to the radio, I'm hearing this and it would change every every minute. That would have been like that, but on an industrial scale if we had 24-7 communication back then. Can you imagine? A lot of what happened was based on secrecy and you wonder whether the level of secrecy would have been possible. Exactly. But there, we end up, there, Jono, we enter another area. Yeah. Whereas the domination of very few media operators mm. in the Australian market is still hasn't changed or has changed very little. Mm. So would we see The Guardian and ESPN and maybe not even AAP, AAP under their current ownership structure, mm. where they're more, I guess, more independent of the, their subscribers than they were back then. Yeah. Would we see them being the only people reporting? Would they come into their own? And we still might see that at some stage in the future because the NRL is so much in bed with Nine Entertainment mm. and news mm. that if a massive story broke involving Nine Entertainment and news, can the reader and listener and viewer trust those outlets to report on that news story? Yeah. Uh, on and so. What we had back then was news running a corporate operation and leaking stuff to Fairfax to give their activities credibility. And <laughs> the actual people at news who worked downstairs being scooped, but then also being given exclusives when they wanted to go yeah. on the record in public. And you wonder what tactics news or nine, we saw nine when they took money off the NRL giving exclusive interviews to their own reporters at Fairfax mm. about their reason. they didn't, And it got, got Todd Greenberg sacked. So I don't think... I think it's very hard if you're an NRL fan now uh, to know what to think when your major journalism outlets are also the ones who are making the stories, who are actually the newsmakers. Yeah. I mean the organisations writing about their own activities. You know, you had news in Fairfax back then and then nine were rights holder. Yeah. Uh, but then you had like seven and ten. When they were covering the Super League war, they didn't have skin in the game at, at all. Mm. You know, it's, it hasn't changed much now. Mm. You know, as far as who would you trust if a Super League war broke out now to give you an unvarnished view of what was going on? Yeah. You're, even in this atomized media world of 2021, your choices are still not much greater. No, you know? not at all. Yeah. I do want to point, just to talk about your, your writing, maybe to indulge myself or yourself, I want to point to one article as, as my favourite from that period. It was a match report of sorts from the Visa World Club Challenge. So the competition was sponsored by Visa, the Visa World Club Challenge. Uh, that clash between the Hunter Mariners and Paris Saint-Germain, it really did perfectly encapsulate the, the wacky side of a pretty serious time. As you said, it was a funny competition. Uh, here's an excerpt. Even the conditions made it ideal for a match that will live in the memory longer than your average preliminary semi-final. The field started as a mud heap, then blazing sun came out in the second half, and by full time, it had almost attained dust bowl status. Then, of course, there are the well-documented woes of the 17 Antipodeans in the PSG squad, who have been found to be living in Paris on tourist visas, and who are not certain to be readmitted to France after the next Saturday's clash with Perth. 
To them, it really is the Visa World Club Challenge, with the biggest challenge being the Visa. That was uh, one of my favourite uh, parts there, Steve, so thank you very much for that. Funnily enough, I, I've been interviewing people, I'm talking to people involved in that match, and I don't know if I wrote it in the match report at the time, but my recollection was that there were more Australians on the Paris side than there was in the Hunter Marin. <laughs> and it included Paul Marquette and Keith Beauchamp, there were actually more Frenchmen on the Hunter side than there was in the Paris side. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a wacky time and a very funny competition. Okay, Steve, uh, unfortunately we are out of time, but um, there is so much more to talk about from the 500-plus pages of the book. But like I said before, big kudos on two tribes. Truly a vital record for the rugby league community that I think people will continue to refer to for decades to come. So, Steve Mascord, all the best, and thank you very much for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Mate, thanks for your support, and you've given me heaps of ideas for the, for the next book. <laughs> and I don't know whether your uh, uh, recollections of diving through the doorway after Darren Albert scored will actually make the reprint, but they're, <laughs> they're in the running. It actually pretty much sums up, uh, I think, the significance of that match, probably better than anyone I interviewed. So, all thanks right. for that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. It was a great slide, and uh, I just, yeah, my head ended up hitting the brick wall so it was good fun all right steve (laughs) all the best mate thank you merry christmas progressive rugby league steve mascord two tribes now as i mentioned before steve wanted to share a discount code for listeners to this pod for australian listeners if you go to stevemascord.com slash product slash two tribes and for international listeners if you go to shop stevemascord.com slash product slash two tribes and use the code progressive rugby league one word you'll get a couple of bucks lopped off the purchase price now steve said to say and i quote the change is reflected at the bottom of the page after you apply the code don't panic if the price stays the same at the top whatever that means as you can probably tell that was my first ever official ad kind of thing that i've done on this pod and i'd be surprised if it's not the last if only you heard all the outtakes. Hey, who am I to stand in the way of a good deal? Alrighty, let's call it. Steve Mascord, thank you. Ladies and gents, thank you. If you do Christmas, let it be merry. If you don't, enjoy some sherry. Until we next meet somewhere in a strong but fading memory of a seminal lifetime event, rugby league, help me, and see ya. 